Welcome to Ladies First Wise Women Talking. It's been a while and the happier we are that we are back uh, with you to um, introduce another wonderful lady to you. My name is Miriam. And I'm Philly. And today we're going to present to you Marjorie, who we came across or we met through um, finding out about a walk of grannies to the border of Mexico as a response to the policy um, and the politics of Donald Trump in autumn. And um, she's living in Brooklyn Heights in an apartment with a beautiful view on New York. And that's about it, what we knew about her when we met her. Oh, hi, <laughs> sorry. Sorry. sorry, right on time. <laughs> hi, it's so nice to meet you. Hi. We, we oh, believe that everybody has accomplished something and everybody is wise and has a story. Exactly. So we knew that she is um, a very active uh, person, an activist when it comes to um, politics. But as it turns out, she's always been like that. But under the recent legislation and under the recent government, she got even more involved. But... Um, Let's go a little bit back into her childhood and how she actually ended up in New York first. My first 17 years were spent in Virginia. A god-awful... You can see the headlines today. Now, you imagine starting there in 1947. I mean, it's just god-awful. And then I'm Jewish. We weren't religious. But you had to stand up. I learned how to stand up early. Public schools in Virginia started with the Lord's Prayer. Give me a break. Mm -hmm. The Jews were, you know, with tails and horns or something. It was like, this was ridiculous. And you had the assumption that I would be very good in math so I could be a thief. Well, I was very good in math, but I wasn't a thief. <laughs> but I, it's just the way, the way it was. And as I said, um, by the time I was 12, I was a committed atheist, but a Jewish atheist. It's not a contradiction. Mm -hmm. And I joined the Girl Scouts. I loved brownies, and it was a different leader. And you had to say the pledge, you know, under God. And I said, I couldn't say under God. And she said, you either say it or you're not a Girl Scout. I argued with her for about a minute, and then I left. And by the time I got to the street to walk home, I was crying. But, you know, it just, uh, yeah, a high school English teacher would give me a pamphlet on Jesus. I mean, in public schools. It's just, so I wanted to go away. Of course you want to go away, <laughs> get away from this. And I wanted to go to California, the Mecca. Mm -hmm. And my father said, well, he's not paying for California. You can go as far as the, as far as the Mississippi River. So, I mean, I didn't have the internet, and I obviously didn't have too much information. So, University of Wisconsin was at Madison, Wisconsin, which was the capital of the state. 
I erroneously thought that would be a big city. Well, give me a break. It's not. I also erroneously thought that if you're going north, it was like utopia. That, of course, was also a miscalculation, to say the least. Yeah, but she did not stay in Madison, Wisconsin for too long. She made it for a short dangle to California after all. And it was cold. I didn't even <laughs> understand cold. I used to sit on the radiator to read and do my homework. I mean, it was just like freezing, absolutely beyond freezing. So after two years as a philosophy major, very practical, I, um, I you know, you do work studies. So I worked in this lab, which is a primate lab where I, whatever. But anyway, the guy who came in after me, he used to come in early and early to talk. And he said he was graduating and he was going to Berkeley for graduate school in history. <clears throat> But they were going to take a <clears throat> converted post office truck and camp all the way over to California. Would you like to come? I said, yes, I would. <laughs> so off we went. We went through the Canadian Rockies, spent the whole summer. Absolutely awesome. Again, awesome. <laughs> and when we got to Berkeley, he stayed, of course, because he was going to school. And I stayed in San Francisco. And I stayed for the whole first semester. I got a job like immediately and a place to live like immediately. And it was great, but it was a fantasy. Everything was beautiful and I needed kind of like the, the grit of life. Mm -hmm. Came home Christmas time, spent with my parents because my birthday is over the Christmas vacation. It's the end of December. And then I came to New York, a different city a different place where I could sleep on a friend's couch who was in graduate school. And within three days, I could find an apartment. It was before the urban renewal of the Upper West Side. I got an apartment on 83rd, just west of Central Park. Fourth for a walk up, $28 a month. That's what it was. Not possible. I found a job at Doubleday Bookstore, um, and I could go to City College for free and finish my degree. It was $50 a semester for a student fee. That was it. Yeah, that was it. That's how she ended up in New York City. Uh, that's somehow always the case that everybody who lives here has some sort of funny, interesting background, how they actually ended up here, how they gravitated towards New York City. And after that, she never left. She even entered in one of the industries that's, uh, that are very essential for this city. She became a cab driver. Yeah, the yellow cabs that you see in all the movies and, of course, in a lot of streets in Manhattan. And we were wondering how did it feel being a woman in New York and being a cab driver during that time? Was she ever afraid? I didn't feel it. I, didn't. I was so optimistic. I found it so interesting. People loved it. That's why I got so many tips. I get twice as many tips as anybody else. But they just didn't give me money, which is why I could afford, you know. It was just fun. And uh, I liked to drive. I was so shy. I was cripplingly shy. So I didn't have to perform in an office 
or with people or with the public, really. It's just for someone in the back of the car that I was driving. And they would always ask me questions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would always answer their questions. And then they would give me a bunch of money. And I liked to drive. And I liked not having a boss watching me. And I could drive three days a week. And three nights, like four to midnight, but I left at like 11. But because I was a young girl, the tips were amazing. I didn't need to work anymore. I could go to school. I mean, life was different. Mm. But I also met my love of my life. You can see his paintings all around the house. He was an artist. And um, so they had, you know, a little room like this practically where you had benches around and you waited for your cab. And I was, I was coming in to sit down and wait for my cab, I think. And he and this other guy were going out, or it was the other way around. But he turned around and said, according to him, he said to his friend, that's a good girl for me. <laughs> and uh, that was it. And in a few weeks, honestly, I gave up that apartment on eight, you know, and, and he had a loft. He had been to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He was from Chicago. He had also been through, you know, the Army. So he had gone there on the GI Bill. And so he had a loft on Kenmare Street, uh, down kind of like where Little Italy is. Mm -hmm. until a few years later when I was pregnant with our daughter and at which point we decided um, she was born on Halloween of 71 that um, we didn't want our daughter to be born in the United States <laughs> we already hated the politics so we were going to, oh god I had no sense, we were going to go to Morocco <laughs> sounded like a good place to go my mother called him up crying, don't take my daughter to Morocco. A passport with the name of Horowitz, this is not going to fly. So we went, he got a charter. We landed in, I think Frankfurt, I'm not sure, and got a car and drove to France. And Cora was born in Paris on Halloween. 1971. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, about three weeks later, I said, I gotta go home. We had sold the loft <laughs> on Kenmare Street. It wasn't very thought out. Um, we did come back and got a loft very soon on um, Fulton Street in the city. You can even see the, the tower from it here. It's right over the bridge on Fulton and Gold. Mm -hmm. And we lived there again. We had 2,500 square feet. It was $150 a month, including heat and electric. The building was sold. The landlord wanted to triple our rent, which is still reasonable, but we didn't have it. There was no way we could stay. So by this time, we have a one-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter. And we moved to the East Village. 
a walk-up tenement railroad flat. When we got to the East Village, I had a community because my kids were at the age where I met people in the playground. Or my daughter, who's the older, would meet someone in kindergarten. And that became a network. None of them were artists and musicians. <laughs> so, they were all, just coincidentally, they all were social workers. As you can see, they lived all over New York, so they came around quite a bit and even went to Europe to give birth to their first child. Um, and um, yeah, Marjorie later, um, she started her life with Reg in New York with her children, with her beloved husband, and then she decided to go back to school. When I went back to school for those last two years, I was, of course, super focused because I wasn't young, still young and stupid, but not, you know, so unrealistic. So I went back purely so I could get a job. So I was going to be like a business major. Of course, this was not a good fit. And I looked at all these courses and I said, this isn't going to work. And then I said, well, I'll be a nurse. There's always jobs for nurses and there's different shifts. I could work night, he could work day and blah, blah, blah. But then the courses again were science, and then the job was blood. I mean, it just was not going to work. And the first semester I took just an English course, I got so inspired. So I said, well, hell with the job, I'll just do this, I'll get the BA. But I you know, got like straight A's for those last two years, even though I didn't start homework till like 9.30 at night after the kids did this, that, and that, <clears throat> that I was going to be a librarian. I thought this was this was good. I won't have to talk to people. I didn't used to talk. I was very shy. And I'd be around books. I mean, what what could be better? But then I, I screwed up. I made it to the last few finalists for this at Pratt. They have a master's degree. And it would not only pay the tuition, but give me a $4,000 stipend. This was great. But I messed up the interview because it was a table like this. There was only one woman and there was like four men and me. And um, so I said, you know, your work, the, the head guy, the dean, you know, it's, you have to be in the library like till midnight. I said, there's no problem, you know. And then he asked me a totally inappropriate question and the woman at the table tried to set me up, you know, steer me, but I didn't catch it and I start to speak mm -hmm. automatically. And how would you have answered this question? The question was, well, what is more important to you, your kids or, or, or stunning to minute? Something to that effect. Mm -hmm. I immediately said, my kids. Mm -hmm. Yep, because it sounds obvious. She tried, the woman tried to steer me that that was not the answer, mm -hmm. but it was already out there, mm -hmm. you know? But as soon as she tried, I could see, and I could see by the expressions. You know, because when you get to the finalists, it's a matter of who can you eliminate. You know, you're usually pretty even at that point. So it's yours to lose. All these people I knew we met in the playground after I graduated from college. And they gave me a little, you know, a little cupcake, 
nobody had any money. They were all on leave from work, you know, because their kids were young, and gave me a package of soap. Literally, that was it. But then someone made a joke. She said, well, now you can get a civil service job. I didn't exactly know what that meant. <clears throat> but what I found out, when my daughter was in middle school, she said, Ma, I, I want to go away to college. Again, I was in my own little bubble. I hadn't really <laughs> thought of this. I thought of, you know, I said, oh my God. And that's when I looked in the paper for civil service jobs and immediately took civil service tests and got job offers. Mm -hmm. And so I went to work for the city mm -hmm. for the next 25 years. Mm -hmm. And I worked in the, the New York City Housing Authority. It wasn't like changing the world or anything, or, but it was, it was a rewarding experience because housing is you know, something that you really wanted, everybody wants, everybody deserves. And if you're aspiring to live in a housing project, you know you're pretty low down in, in your life. And those are the people I'm working with, people who live there. So I started as a housing assistant with 400 apartments that I was responsible for, to the assistant manager who's the supervisor of the office staff, to the manager who's the head of the whole project, where I was um, head of a project with 1,300 units and like 60-odd employees. And then I took another promotion, and I was an administrator. And then I'm in with the housing applications department, head of their Bronx office. So now you really see the people who are aspiring to, to get into housing. Mm -hmm. And it's wrenching, you know. And I always felt that it's just a fine line of luck between your circumstance and a horrible circumstance. It's not like I worked harder or worked better or was smarter or anything. The fine line between good circumstances and bad, that's certainly something that others and some feel stronger about than others. And for Marjorie, that initially was always a very important topic, as we felt that she, even early as a child, said when she wanted to become a Girl Scout, why can't I join? Um, so, yeah, Marjorie really is committed to that type of um, finding social justice and committing to it. Yeah, and even with the jobs that she did, um, uh, working with the Department of Housing in New York, which is certainly something where you can do all kinds of good because housing is a huge problem for a lot of people in this very expensive city. So for Marjorie, social justice and standing up for one another, for for people, being with people, is very important. So the politics, I've always been aware, I'm always super aware and I mean when I was college I marched against the Vietnam War and even when the kids were small we took them to a march in Central Park against nuclear weapons and then when this monster in chief took over so the next day there was there was a march I wanted to go and my granddaughter who was then I guess 11 wanted to go so she made posters for the two of us And we went, and my daughter-in-law came with us and some other friends, and we marched through this sea of humanity, which gave us hope that um, it wasn't going to be as bad as we feared. And, of course, you know, it's much worse than we even could ever imagine. 
every day an assault on our rights, on our humanity, on our dignity, on what we thought we were, or at least described to be. I mean, mm-hmm. so when Terry, who's the woman downstairs, um, put this out, nobody else could or wanted to go for whatever reasons. But she had been to a lecture, we had both been at a lecture, and it was about fascism. And I had made a comment when we came out about we being, you know, the United States, what what we were if we don't stand up. And she connected with that. That's already leading up to the march that actually made us find her, Granny's Respond, that's the name of the group. And uh, she became a part of that group. We started August 31st and we ended, I think, August 8th. We gathered in a Union Square. I think it was about 20-ish when we left. That may not be exactly accurate. But people came, they came a group from like the West Coast down to Texas, from Wisconsin. And then as we left, people joined, let's say in Louisville or Montgomery or New Orleans and went with us. And, and people wanted, you know, they were so passionate. I mean, like, we were going to go from New Orleans to Texas. But this group in New Orleans, I mean, in Louisiana, a few hours outside of New Orleans, wanted to do something. So they mapped us and they said, if you go to this uh, parking lot of a multi parking lot. You should get there around 12 o'clock and we're going to give you lunch. So they had, like, you know, I can't remember what they are, but it's, you know, for a Louisiana kind of sandwich. And they had this whole setup. They just, it was like, you know, like women very young with like babies strapped to them to like the 80s or years old with the walkers. It was awesome. It was just, they just wanted to do something. It, whatever they could, and um, it renewed my faith the whole trip. The political situation that we're in right now, the Trump administration, to call it by name, um, makes so many people in this country so sad and fe- and brings the feeling up that we should do something and that there's so much resistance going on and there's so much fight against that going on, what is coming from, from out of Washington, and that stirred and fired up Marjorie uh, in her work and her activism as well. Going on this trip was one thing. I mean, my big ranking is is really just rights, civil rights across the board, you know, women's rights, civil rights, what, just human rights. This is just off the charts. It's mm-hmm. just off the charts. So I, we canvassed for the election, the midterm election, and that was inspiring too because we went to New Jersey where there was a, a race where there's 12 years of a Republican congressman and it's one of them that got flipped. We knocked on doors, and the other one we did was for the Sky Max Rose in um, Staten Island, and we we canvassed in the Bay Ridge section, 
And that flipped is like the first time ever that Staten Island ever voted for a Democrat. I mean, you know, and I'll be out there for the uh, 2020, wherever they want me to go. I will be going in my little Honda Civic. Let's go. Yeah, believing that you can make a difference, that marching, resisting, that all of that helps and can make a change is something that we have to learn from Marjorie and have to always have in mind. And besides being politically active, one other thing has always played an important role in her life, and that's her family. I mean, you always learn from, from life. I obviously was not that focused. <laughs> um, I don't have any part of my life I really want to change. I've loved my life. It's not always been easy. It's not always been happy. Um, Reg died of a heart attack. Unprepared. Kids were still in their 20s. I was a whopping 53. Um, we'd been together for over 30 years. It was just like, a, I didn't even know how to inhale and exhale. It was just like, Are you freaking kidding? He left here at 11.30 at night to go play his um, flute. He used to go to a jam session that started at midnight, a place called the University of the Streets on Avenue A and 7th Street, because we lived, before we moved here, on 6th Street between 1st and 2nd. And so for like the last 25 years of his life, he went to this jam session with his flute. He was not a musician, but the flute was important. He was a painter. I never went. It started at midnight. Who could stay up? Before three o'clock in the morning, he was dead. He'd taken a solo on his flute, sat down smiling, and as the guys described it to me, knocked him right off the chair. He still had a smile in death. That was beyond hard. And it was beyond to accept it. Under, I couldn't understand why. It's just like, what? You know, it's just, it was beyond. And I was working then as a manager in the housing authority. At that point, I'd gotten inside. I was with Section 8. And I hadn't been there very long, only a few months. And um, at that point, from it was in January of 2001, From January 1st till April 1st, I had to do two jobs, cover two manager units. And people said, oh, you shouldn't do this, you know. You know, the union, I said, it doesn't matter, you know. It's a temporary thing the director asked me to. I have no problem with it. I don't have too much work. It wasn't like it. But for those three months, and this was January, I'd only been there three weeks in this double position. The secretary, for the one I was covering for three months, she knew me for three weeks. And she knew I wasn't going to be there permanently. And then my assistant manager from my other unit had only been with me for three months. She didn't know. These two women, I will never, ever forget, as long as I have a brain, will ever forget, because they literally held me up. Because I spent every day just leaking. All I did was, I did the work, because the work didn't take 
super brain. It took a road, took doing this and, you know, things that you could do without thinking. You had to concentrate, but you didn't have to think. I didn't have to come up with what to create. So when I got a promotion from that job to the, you know, the administrative job, what did I do? I gave each of them presents and they remain in my heart. You see, I still, because just goodness and generosity mm-hmm. for nothing in return, they just <laughs> helped. Mm-hmm. Oh goodness. Reg missed, uh, he missed any grandchildren. He missed Omar finding his love. Um, Just, he missed so much. He missed a retirement where we could have had fun together. I mean, we had fun. Um, We never had any money together. He was, he always worked, but he didn't make much money. And I didn't make much money. I made enough. Uh, you know, I'm not worried, but um, so we used to take trips every summer, you know, we'd get in the car and we'd just drive. We'd put our money in the middle and when we ran out of money, that's when we'd come home. The last night we were always sleeping on the side of the road, honestly, in the car, but it was good. It was um, good. And. It wasn't all perfect. I don't mean to let you know that this was all sunshine and light. No, <laughs> this was not. We fought a lot. We did not come from the same experiences. We did not think alike on certain issues. He was not political. He never voted. I mean, and I was just like, <laughs> he didn't vote until 1989 when David Dinkins ran for mayor. And then he was angry at himself that he voted because, you know, it was a black candidate. And he said that wasn't right. And then he didn't like Dinkins that much anyway. So, but, um, um, so it was hard for all of us. It was unexpected. Poof, you're gone? I mean, what is this? But it was hard for all of us. Um, so we were always close, and that probably made us closer. Um, but, you know, I still miss him. I mean, and my life is full, but it's still like, um, because I know how much he missed and how much I missed. I think anybody who who's loved somebody probably thinks that they are the one and only person, not just for them, but you know, I, I think of him as so talented, so smart, so kind, so much fun, so much this, so much that. I know realistically he can't be the number one, 
but he still is. I thought he was, he was, um, was just from a different world, a different world even just being an artist. I'm not even visual, truly. You know, I, the, one of the first times we went anywhere was to the MoMA. If only I'd known him only a few days. And literally, we're going through this thing like this, like a whirling dervish. I had didn't even get a chance to read who did what. I mean, we get when we finish, she says, what did you like best? I said, what did I like best? I didn't even know what I saw. But he had completely vacuumed it all in. He knew everything because it was all visual, not reading. He wouldn't have read a word anyway, even if he could, could have stood there for 10 minutes, which is why when we took trips, he only looked, he never read the signs. So if, one time my son, he took my son home from college for Christmas. My son fell asleep. It was just the two of them in the car. Next thing he knew, he, when he woke up, there were three hours away because he never turned because he never read a sign. <laughs> he went three hours in the wrong direction. I mean, it's just... So right then you're coming from different places. Mm-hmm. What was the same, obviously, is core values, if you will. Mm-hmm. But his honesty was a little... I tried to tell him that you do not have to tell anybody exactly what you think of them. <laughs> you don't have to lie, but you don't have to say. He never got that. He was always frank, so it could be very brutal. He was a very kind person, but he could be brutal. There were, there were differences. Mm-hmm. What do you think is important <coughs> in relationships? What do you think what's like the most important to to be happy with someone? Um, well, simplistic answer, but love is, it does take care of everything. I mean, if you love someone, you can accept all their imperfections, all those things that you want to kill them for, or um, that you just can't stand. It becomes standable. But if someone else did the exact same thing, you know, they'd be out the door, because you mm-hmm. So love puts a different you know, spin on it, you accept. And it's not like you think you're upset, accepting, it's just acceptable. And um, so that's why I know I am lucky. I was able to lo- find love and love. Yeah, love does definitely help uh, in all kinds of uh, relationships, especially in romantic relationships, I heard. <laughs> no, but... Um, I mean, yeah, finding love and finding true love, which I think also um, means that you need to have a certain respect and a certain will to talk things through. As we heard, they did have differences and they weren't in line on all matters, but they always find a way to talk to each other and to work through things. And I think that, plus all the love they had for each other, helped with having this wonderful relationship. And speaking of love, I think also when it comes to family and raising children, we were wondering if she could give us any advice because she had she raised two children and she was talking a lot about love and we were wondering how important it is and what she could give us as a kind of advice. You worry. You worry about you doing the right thing. And I know this again sounds not too wise, But I found the only thing that's important is loving. If you love that kid and the kid knows you love them, because they will, um, that is really all they need. You just 
you can't love them enough. You cannot hug them enough, kiss them enough, love them enough. And, and then they always know that you are there for them, no matter what they do or how they do it. And that doesn't mean that it's not always, you're going to find a lot of bumps, a lot of bumps on the way. And a lot of things are, can be very stressful. I think even now even more than when I raised my kids. First of all, there was not needing so much money to just survive. I mean, our apartment in the East Village was, you know, not cost very much money. But no matter what your circumstances are, you as the adults or, or as the kids, if you're enveloped in love, I really do believe that is really all you need for the strength to get through whatever it's going to throw in your way. Because when it was a struggle, and I'm just talking about it, it's always, you just got to keep going. You just got to put one foot in front of the other. You cannot take that breath and stop and think about it so much that you get paralyzed. You just have to keep pushing. And then at the end of the day, when you look back, because you obviously have not done everything perfectly or the way that you want it or whatever, um, you have to remember you have done the best you could. I did the best I could. That doesn't mean it couldn't have been better, but I did the best I could, and I can't, I can't punish myself. And my kids are remarkable people. I love them to pieces, so, and I love the Grahams. But my kids, uh, she's a writer. My son is a jazz musician. And um, her husband is a doctor. His wife is um, uh, uh, teaches English at BMCC. And I love them all. I'm also lucky in that, because I know many people who have a bit of a strain with their in-law children. I love them, and I like them. And we, I, it's terrific. I, think they're just terrific and I'm just always amazed because I constantly hear people tell me of strains between the in-law children and I do not have that. You asked me before about my one regret or something mm -hmm. else. What I would have changed, and it haunts me, is that I had, as a young person, so many ideas. I had lines in the sand. It had to be this way. One of those things was that it's not necessary to get married. And Reg asked me a zillion times. And I didn't because I didn't think it was necessary, I didn't think it was too conventional, it was too this, too But after he died, I was completely haunted, because what I realized was that I did not have the generosity to do something that he asked me to do. And now I have to live with that. And that's, that is my major regret. And it won't go away. <laughs> Nothing I can do about it because I had these lines in the sand. So you learn when you get older that there is gray. Most of life is gray.
-hmm. It's not absolutes. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's fine to do something for someone else, or if right. it's important for someone else. Yeah. But I did not know that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So. Yeah. But also, it's also yeah, it's always hard. But I think it's also good to have some kind of line and direction, maybe. Yeah. And to be able to take it from him that he was fine with you not doing mm. it. So that was his gift to you. You you now feel you should That's have... That's so nice. Now you, <laughs> now, you, now you feel you should have gifted him marrying him, but technically you allowed him to gift you not to marry him. If you see it that, that way. That is the nicest... Know? I've told this to a number of people. That is the nicest <laughs> response yet. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> I, I like that. Oh, that's good. He asked me the last night. I'm, I'm sure he knew, because he called me at work five minutes. I had already packed up, ready to leave for the weekend. We had all these plans, and for the whole weekend, I even kidded to the you know person near me at work that we're overbooked. We're overbooked. And he said he wanted me to come. He kept the Sixth Street place as a studio to come there instead of going home first. I argued with him. I said I don't want to. He said. He was very clear, and I was annoyed. I was really annoyed. I was pissed. And so I went there, and I continued my pistol, and it was, it was obnoxious. <laughs> and he said, don't you understand? Because I said it would only take a few minutes. I said, don't you understand a few seconds would be too long? And I was like, but, you know, I wanted to see you, and I didn't want to wait. I was like, what? You know, I didn't respond. There was nothing to respond. I didn't know what the frig he was talking about. Of course, he died that night. I honestly think that he had a dream, that he had fallen asleep and had a dream that this was going to happen. Mm -hmm. That's what I think. He left at 11.30 to go to the thing. And luckily, I said, you know, I love you, instead of like, go fuck yourself or something like that. And he said, I love you. But he wouldn't let me go outside the door jam. Push me back. It's like, don't follow me. I'm going to death. I mean, that's, I obviously have thought about every excruciating second leading up to this. But that's what I think, because he was much more spiritual. He was religious, even though I wanted a religion-free zone of a life. But it doesn't make it when he is a believer. Yeah, the death of a loved one is certainly something very difficult to go through. And um, she is still in love till today uh, with her husband, Reg. And um, I think it was a beautiful story that she shared there with us and also being very vulnerable about how everything happened that night. And it was very precious for me to listen to that. Yeah, for me certainly too. And I always... I'm touched when women or the women we met open up themselves and tell us their their dearest stories to their heart and um, share it with uh, us but also with you and um, of course because our podcast is also about aging and being older we wanted to 
let like we wanted to know from her what her thoughts are about aging and about living a life in the 70s. Well, first of all, I think like many people, I never thought I'd make it to 30. I mean, that was kind of ridiculous, but it really wasn't. But starting at 20, the decades became difficult. Oh my God, I'm not a teenager anymore. I was going to turn 30 is when I went back to school. I got to get this together. When I turned 40, it was like, I got to get a better place to live. When I turned 50, it was like, oy vey, I cannot handle this. I was three months leading up to it in complete depression. This is like so old. And I wanted a party, I decided. It's the only thing that's going to cheer me up. Reg didn't want to have a party. And, but he made me the most beautiful party on the planet because he was visual. The house was just, it was just so gorgeous with flowers and colors and candles. It was just friggin' gorgeous. It was about 25 people here. And uh, then I turned 60. He's no longer here. And I planned for myself a three-day festival, if you will. You know, something happened Friday night. Saturday was my birthday. And Sunday, I had a three-day festival. 70 was the easiest. 70 was just, I'm glad I'm here. And I'm, I thought about it months ahead. I'm just, I'm not going to be involved with things that annoy me. Of course, Trump has intruded on that. But, or, I mean, on a personal level, I'm not going to listen to bullshit. I don't have time for it. My time is limited. I admit that. So I don't want to be annoyed. I don't want to listen to, you know, crying and weeping about whatever. Just be positive. You know, I know there's things that you have to, but I don't have time for it. I really don't have the time. I mean, my father died at 78. My mother died just at 80. They didn't get to be these big, long lies. Mm -hmm. My life is <laughs> finite. I may feel fine, and God knows how long I'll you know, ever be. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, okay. luckily, I am in good shape. Um, I, I just find this more mellow. Mm. Um, now, when I was 69, I think about age a lot. I made a list of things I wanted to do before 70. And this isn't like traveling the world. No. These were things I wanted to get out of the way so I didn't have to go into my 70s with them, like clean the closets, um, <laughs> get a checkup at the doctor, get a hearing aid, which I had to get, and lose weight. I did them all except the losing weight. I just try to do and feel better. You, you, you can't stop the clock. And um, when my mother turned 70, I was in my 30s. And I thought, oh my God, that is so old to myself. And I said to, to her, how does it feel? And she told me the wisest thing. She said, I, feel, I still feel like that 14-year-old girl. And that's the truth. So here I am, 71. I am the same. I am that person that was 14. Yeah, and here we are at the end of our talk with Marjorie. We are having a lot to take away from that. She is certainly a very active lady. And with 14 years old, one of the youngest that we interviewed. <laughs> it's true. Feeling At like least 14. in her mind. <laughs> no, yeah. but it's true. Uh, she's still very involved um, in certain activities and groups all around New York City. Yeah, she's um, involved in New York City Court Watch. She's still um, 
connected to that group Granny's Respond that went down to the border to fight um, the immigration politics of Donald Trump and the separation of kids uh, with their parents when they try to enter the country. She will be very active, as she said, during the next like election phase, so next year. Yeah, she's she will canvas for prior to the next election. Yeah, so we hope you enjoyed this uh, new uh, podcast episode again. Sorry for the longer break. It was because I gave birth to a son and uh, <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> so we had to a take very a break. very very beautiful son who's like so cute and um, yeah so that's totally totally fine to take a little little break for that yeah we hope to uh, present you more women um, in the future in the nearest future exactly and uh, yeah the podcast is still called ladies first wise women talking my name is Miriam and I'm Philly and we're very glad that you are our listeners and you can find us everywhere where you can find people nowadays on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And uh, yeah, you can write us an email if you like to ladiesfirstpod at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions or any comments about the show, we're looking forward to hear from you. Thank you very much and hopefully talk to you again soon.